Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Salim Body, which I know only his father knows how to say correctly, so I'm just going to say it and leave it out there, about the history of ILNP and IP mobility. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good morning, afternoon, whatever it is there, Salim. It's morning for Donald and I, so, you know. It's afternoon for me, so good afternoon. Thank good you, afternoon. Russ. Cool. Pleasure to so, be talking to you. Yeah, so uh, let's start uh, talking about ILNP first, because I think that is the more important thing to get out of the way, is just to discuss what is ILNP, what does ILNP stand for, you know, what's what's going on with all that. So let's start with that that business, because a lot of people listening to this probably don't even know what ILNP is. Right, okay, so let me start with what ILNP is. ILNP is the Identifier Locator Network Protocol, and the uh, idea behind ILNP was to try and solve a whole bunch of uh, problems with networking in IP, which over the years have had uh, a mixture of different solutions and to try and harmonize them all uh, to allow all of them to be used together. So things like multi-homing, mobility, uh, localized addressing as done with NAT, uh, end-to-end packet level security, uh, while still maintaining true end-to-end connectivity. So no, no middle boxes, all done end-to-end. Okay, so the... 50th standard to solve the <laughs> locator problem with the 51st. So tell me how you got into this. I mean, how did you, how, why, or why, how did you um, get into working on this particular problem? Like what picked your interest or what was going on there? Well, I, I was aware of um, the IPNG work. So this is going back a long time now, the mid 1990s. And there was some discussion about what the architecture might look like. And um, I was still a student then, so um, I was kind of slightly detached from it, seeing all, all the, the, the wise folk in the world try and work out what's happening. And then some years later, around 2003, uh, what actually happened was my friend and colleague, Ran Atkinson, who I didn't know at the time, uh, started a discussion with me. And he'd been uh, part of the namespace research group from the IRTF who had been discussing various things, including uh, Mike O'Dell's proposal for 8 plus 8, uh, and looking at uh, changing the way addressing is used in networking so that instead of having a single, uh, effectively, uh, almost flat address to use an identity uh, above the network layer, there were distinct namespaces. There was an identity uh, and a location, a topological location, and they were really distinct and more crisply defined. So Ran is really to blame for getting me into this in the first place. And then he and I worked together for a number of years uh, and came up with the initial uh, specification for ILNP, which is currently a set of experimental uh, RFCs, RFC 6740 to 6748. So um, although they are a set of experimental st- uh, standards, they actually just started off as a research project, some curiosity for uh, Ran and I to try and pursue a solution to this uh, 
overall problem we saw of harmonized functionality for uh, IP. Okay, so 8 plus 8 is where it started. So maybe you might want to explain 8 plus 8 a little bit because I'm sure, again, a lot of people don't even know what 8 plus 8 is because it's pretty interesting, actually, this 8 plus 8 concept. And um, this goes back pre-IPv6, right? This is way before IPv6. Yeah, so um, 8 plus 8 was a proposal by uh, Mike O'Dell. Uh, it has another name sometimes, GSE. Uh and GSE stands for Global Site and Endpoint, and it was, uh, you can still find the internet draft uh, on, the, on the web if you look for it. And it really just describes a way of changing uh, the way that addressing is used so that there is a very good distinction between what is used in the core network for routing and what is used by the end system uh, for example, at, at the TCP level or the UDP level at the transport level in order to identify uh, connections. And by having that clean separation, you should be able to tidy up a lot of things, uh, such as mobility, which we'll go on to talk about later, I'm sure. And so that proposal really was the starting point uh, of taking what was then becoming IPv6, looking at the address space and saying, from an engineering point of view, let's split that address space in two, uh, eight bytes and eight bytes, hence the eight plus eight name, and use the top eight bytes for routing and the lower uh, eight bytes solely for identity. So basically, when you talk about location, you're talking about topological location in the network. You're not, you know, exactly. you're not talking about geographic. So a lot of people get confused about this, is that, you know, you, in, in networks, you have this topological concept, like there's the topology of the network where you're connected to that topology, where you leaf node off that topology. And then, so the identity is something completely different. Now, originally, DNS was kind of supposed to be a, an identity thing, right? It would identify the host no matter where it attached to the network. But that seems to have fallen to the wayside in modern networking. People don't seem to think of DNS that way. Would you agree with that or is that like off the... I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's a fairly, when you start talking about the stack as a whole, then it gets uh, more complex because there are loads of bindings between namespaces and objects in the kind of abstract sense in the stack. And certainly a a uh, fully qualified domain name can be used as an identity today, but it's really an application level identity. And what we're really uh -huh. talking about here are identities that can be used at the network layer and the transport layer. And as you said, topological location, uh, which can be used for, for routing. And the, and the easiest way of thinking about topological location uh, right now is to think of it as a, uh, as a routing prefix. So a routing prefix, uh, uh, the bits for a routing prefix go into part of the address in every packet, and those effectively identify uh, or name uh, a network to which that packet, if it's, a, if it's a destination address, that packet has to go to, and if it's a source address, where that packet has come from in terms of a, a network name or network, um, uh, something to identify topologically where the network is. Okay, so now if radio were sitting here, she'd probably say, See, we did this right in CLNS in the first place. And now <laughs> we're just getting to the point where we realize <laughs> we actually need to redo it <laughs> in IP the way it should have been done. 
so, so right. So that that is pretty interesting because in CLNS and and IS to IS, you know, the original uh, uh, the original addressing scheme there was you had these area IDs that weren't really area IDs. They were areas, but they were within an organization. So you right. had this entire ar- architecture of organizations down through areas and flooding domains, and you kind of separated out the organization from the topology of the network itself in a way that was kind of useful in many ways. And now we kind of do that today with BGP with ASs yeah, and so the-, the IGP within that, right? And so, yeah, that's kind of – so, all right. So you're trying to divide – so with 8 plus 8, you're trying to divide the topological location of the host from the identity of the host itself, which is an interesting idea. So how does ILMP come out of that? I mean, why – why ILNP and like how does it work a little bit so people can understand how those two relate to each other? Right. So we took the original um, kind of scheme that had been proposed by Mike Odell for splitting up the address. So if you were to look at the the Internet Draft Online, you'd see that the top eight bytes are actually split up into what um, Mike Odell called a routing group, would be, which would be used uh, for global routing. And then what he called a site topology partition, which was like a subnetwork identifier. So it would really um, be used locally once the packet had got to uh, uh, an edge network. And the uh, way that the routing prefix for a uh, globally unique IPv6 address works today, you you still have that partition, really. You have uh, the top bits of the uh, address, the IPv6 address that are used for global routing and some bits... Um, for example, if you've got a slash 48, then 16 bits could be used as a effectively a sub-network identifier at your site. So that still exists. And that is exactly what's adopted in ILNP for the locator part uh, of, the, of the namespace. So you basically have a locator that names a network and it follows the same kind of scheme. In fact, the same syntax and semantics as an IPv6 uh, prefix today. Then the lower 64 bits of what is the current um, address space for IPv6. That's used as an identifier, but instead of being bound to an individual interface, that identifier is bound to the node as a whole. And then part of um, ILMP and where it goes beyond where uh, Mike O'Dell got to in his scheme was how those bindings take place between the identifier, the locator, and the interface. So a locator is bound to an interface, and then identifier, because it now refers to a whole node rather than just an interface, you can bind to one or more locators and through their locator to an individual interface. So, for example, you could have an identifier for a node bound just to a single locator and therefore to a single interface or have a binding from one identifier to multiple locators simultaneously and therefore to multiple interfaces. And you have multi-homing, for example, or you could change the locator because the identifier um, is used by the transport layer but the locator isn't so you could change the locator um, as the connectivity for a node changes and by doing that you have uh, mobility you dynamically change the binding between the identifier and the locator and you've changed topological location you're mobile okay so that that is actually interesting that you say that because what you're saying is, is again, going back to the CLNS concept, each device has an ID mm-hmm. that is a network layer identifier rather than an application layer identifier. So that's how it's different than DNS. And once you do that, then rather than, than binding to an to a interface, 
you're actually binding to the device itself, which is completely foreign to the IP world. The IP world, we really just bind to interfaces, and that's all we really do. So if you have a device with 100 interfaces, all of those interfaces are bound to subnets, and all of those subnets are bound you know, topologically to different topological locations in the network. And I think the problem there is, is that if you try to move the device or move one of its interfaces to a different topological location, there's no way at a higher level to understand that this TCP endpoint that I'm talking to or quick endpoint as it might be or UDP or whatever it is, um, HTTPS or whatever, is actually the same device even though it moved topologically in the network. Is that 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 kind of, I think, is where you're getting at, right? That's pretty much it. So the instead of using the whole uh, set of address bits, for example, as part of the TCP or UDP state, the, the transport layer state, you only use the identifier. And so the requirement is that during the duration of a transport layer session, whether it's a TCP connection or UDP session, the identifier stays stable. Um, so you still have uh, a stable, immutable uh, state for the endpoint identification, but the locator binding, so between the identifier and the locator, can change dynamically, and therefore you have some flexibility in the connectivity without violating the immutability of the end-to-end state. So you have true end-to-end connectivity at the transport layer and above, but the flexibility of changing network connectivity uh, below the transport layer. Okay, so beyond mobility, so let's not talk about mobility first, because that's like its own entire thing. What other problems does this try to solve? I mean, other than just the mobility, because I kind of gave the mobility use case there, but obviously there are other issues here that are being solved as well. So what are those? Well, so the other um, problem that can be solved, for example, is um, the way multi-homing is done. So multi-homing at the moment, uh, you might have uh, two or more addresses that are assigned to a site, and then somehow you have to uh, maintain routing state for those addresses. And if you have, for example, um, uh, provider independence addresses assigned to a site, then those addresses have to be inserted into routing tables uh, across the network and they can't be aggregated. So you have bloat in the routing tables and that is not good for routing table state as uh, the, the number of uh, networks that multi-homed grows. But uh, that is because the address forms part of the identity for the site. But with IlandP, you no longer need that. You have identities that can be tied to individual hosts, um, which is independent of their topological location. And the binding between identity is dynamic. So for example, if you want a site to be multi-homed, you don't need to worry about the network prefix, you just grab that from a, an IPv6 routing advertisement, that becomes your locator, and you just use it um, from a, one particular provider. If you change providers, you have multiple uh, providers and they provide multiple prefixes, you can have um, dynamic changing of bindings between identifiers and locators. One identifier bound to multiple locators, and you get the, the multi-homing um, as part of just the general behavior of how connectivity is achieved for ILNP uh, okay. and having it as a routing function, it's now happening at the end host. So maybe you can explain a little bit about how ILNP works. So you get this, you get this locator. What do you do with this locator such that you can actually do that so that now when you multi-home, everybody connected to you understands. So you're using 
the ILMP locator or the identifier, not the locator, sorry, the identifier as the TCP or UDP or quick endpoint. But beyond that, I mean, how do you learn that endpoint address or how does that happen? What, what goes on behind the scenes to make that work? Okay, so let's um, suppose you are multi-homed and your host is connected to the network and just through the standard IPv6 mechanisms, um, it picks up routing advertisements from the upstream providers. It picks up its routing prefixes and uh, let's say it has two upstream providers, each of them giving the, uh, a prefix into, providing a prefix into the network. Those two prefixes each become a locator for ILNP. Those locators are picked up by the end hosts and let's assume it just has one identity. That identity can be bound to both locators simultaneously and then DNS has to be aware that, okay, there are potentially uh, these two locators plus this identifier available for this host. And when you do a DNS lookup, you now get identifiers and locator values rather than, say, quad A values for uh, an IPv6 address. So is that what would be used for Anycast? How would you do Anycast? Anycast, at the moment, you would just do using standard IP. So there are two parts that we haven't looked at, um, two parts of IP connectivity that we haven't looked at with ILNP, which is Anycast and Multicast. And the reason really is that um, the way that they're done in IP at the moment is done in a very different way um, based on the infrastructure usage. So for example, Multicast the way the infrastructure treats an address is really just as a label. Um, it's, you know, there is routing that takes place, for example, in the wide area for multicast, but it's just used as a, uh, as a label and not uh, effectively as an address. Uh, for any cast, you require some help from DNS as well as uh, perhaps from BGP. And so that really is a, a routing issue to make sure that administrati administratively, geographical locations can use the correct addresses. So because those that requires address usage in a, in a very different way, uh, we haven't really looked at that at all uh, and consider that just to be done for ILNP as it would be with IPv6. Okay, wow. So that's really interesting. So essentially you are just um, using the... Um, you're just using kind of, could you characterize this as a centralized server, like a centralized system to register these things? Is that the way you would put it? Or how would you characterize sorry that? For, sorry for multicast or for? No, I'm sorry, for normal, for normal operation. For, for normal operation, um, once a ILNP host has managed to pick up its prefixes and worked out which... Uh, bindings it has between identifier and the prefixes, which are its locators, it's ready to send out packets uh, with a combination of those identifier and locators in each packet. Uh, we call that an identifier locator vector, so a particular pairing of an identifier and locator. And for receiving incoming um, packets, it's the same. As long as somebody knows the identifier, one valid identifier locator vector can be used to reach an ILNP host. Uh, packets just go into the network with that pairing in. And ILNP, um, in fact, there's a version of ILNP 
which we call IPv6 because it's a superset of IPv6. On the wire, the packets look like IPv6 packets, and that's because we wanted to have backwards compatibility and incremental deployment. So on the wire, ILNP packets look like IPv6 packets. See, so, so FR routing already supports that. <laughs> <laughs> As I was telling Donald earlier, we should put that on the FR routing webpage that it supports ILNPv6. See, there you go. Done. So um, now let's back up and talk about the history of this. So you developed this with RAN. And you worked on this a bit with Rand Atkinson, which I know ran from uh, my VeriSign days because he went out, came out to VeriSign a couple of times and talked to us about ILNP and other things. Because I think that at one point, or perhaps it's still true, that ILNP can use DNS as a way to distribute those vectors, right? Or as a way That's to right. distribute the, at least the identifiers, right? You can look up a domain name, and when you look up that host domain name, it's kind of, it uses dynamic DNS so that when you find out what your identifier is, you can push it into DNS. And then when somebody looks up your DNS name, they can actually see your, your vectors and get to you. And as you change where you're located in the network, you can actually do that. Now, at the same time, um, you can, during a session, if, I'm, if I remember this correctly, if your vector is going to change, you can pre-send a vector change to your TCP peers right? And they will switch at the right moment or switch over so that you can actually do things. Now, this is where we start getting the mobility, right? That, that's exactly right. So um, for initial setting up of communication to a, from one node to a remote uh, island P node, you would do the DNS lookup and then you would set up your session, TCP session or UDP session, just like you would for IP. Now, once that session is set up, let's assume one of those nodes is mobile. The process is that as the node is mobile, let's say it moves into um, a new network and it receives a routing advertisement from that new network with a routing prefix that becomes its new locator. Once it's figured that out, it sends what's called a locator update, which is a new type of ICMP message to its correspondent node and says, here's my new locator. We're going to start using that soon the correspondent node says, okay, I've got this locator values. It sends back a locator update acknowledgement. Then the two nodes have synchronized to say, yes, we know about this new locator. And the communication continues, but of course the locator part uh, uh, that goes in the packet has now changed because it's the new locator that the mobile node has picked up. Okay, all right, cool. So that's interesting. So why did... Or how did mobility come into this as a problem that needed to be solved? Because I know this wasn't, again, on your original map of things to solve. You were more focused on other things like multi-homing. So was that something that RAM was working on? Was that something that just came out of the work, fell out of the work naturally? Or how did that work? Well, RAM actually did come at it from a, a routing perspective originally. And uh, of course, he was, he was and still is uh, industry-based, and I'm, I'm in academia. And once we started thinking about this, you we say realized... That. You say that like it's a disease or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, to highlight the differences, the different approaches. Um, <laughs> and so when I started looking at this, um, between Ran and I in the discussion, we realized actually if we could have this separation, there's a whole bunch of other things that get resolved, which at the moment for IP, there are different um, solutions for. And none of the solutions talk to each other. Okay, so things like 
uh, mobility and multi-homing, the solutions for those don't necessarily work together. If you wanted mobility and multi-homing together, it's kind of doable. You can, you can, you know, mash things together to make it work, but it may not be so nice. If you want, for example, localized addressing, a la NAT, um, for whatever reason, at your site, if you want to use that with mobility and multi-homing and say end-to-end uh, -end IP level packet security, that's also very tricky to sort out. Again, it's kind of doable, but none of these things were really uh, designed with the other in mind. They were developed over different timeframes, and so they don't work together. So we thought, wouldn't it be nice if all of these things that people would like to have as part of IP could all work together in a harmonized manner? Um, and given I'm, I'm in research, I thought, well, why not have that as the research challenge? Uh, and that's what then Ryan and I set about doing, really. Okay. All right. Interesting. So when you talk about, you know, this is being a research project and stuff like that, so can you give me a rough estimate of when this research started or when you started working on this type of project? I reckon the, yeah, I, it's, it's actually been a fair, fair, fair amount of time. Um, I think the first conversations Ryan and I had on this were in 2003. And let me just check my facts. I think the first paper um, that we had on ILMP was published in uh, 2004 at uh, a symposium in London. And that really tried to capture our thinking so far. And since then, we've just developed it and refined it a bit further. Um, and then we had the experimental RFCs in 2012. And since then, I've really been working with uh, my students to try and make this real building um, code into mainly Linux. We had a little bit of development work on FreeBSD as well, but mainly Linux to see how this can be made to work. And, um, you know, we do have something now uh, in our lab, in a test bed, that uh, will work, um, you know, between nodes over an IP network, uh, truly end to end without any middle boxes. So, so one reason I wanted to bring that up is because a lot of people seem to think that these things happen very, very quickly, like overnight, a new technology comes out and boom, it just goes out there and it works and every, you know, like massive adoption or whatever. A lot of people don't realize that it takes 10 to 15 years a lot of times to actually develop something to the point where you can bring it up in a lab. Now, I remember when I was at VeriSign, there were experiments going on with VeriSign servers in Scotland, from what I remember, some recursive servers or something like that, um, with ILNP, experimental implementations of ILNP at the university there or something like that as well that were going on. Now, I don't know if those were still ongoing or if you still have that stuff installed. Yeah, well yeah that's right in fact uh, one of the one of the uh key issues that we came across uh, again a purely practical issue but a, a really interesting problem is that if you really do want to use ilmp mobility for mobility and you are relying on the dns to hold the current location of a node so it moves it gets a new locator so it updates the dns to say here's my new locator for any incoming connections if you really do want to do that, then um, anyone who's using DNS, they've made a DNS lookup and DNS uses caching. So if you make a DNS lookup and um, you've cached an entry, then it may no longer be valid. So for ILNP, you need to have very low cache times, like on the order of a few seconds or lower. Right. And so at that time, this was around 2010, 2011, um, you know, people were of the opinion, well, you shouldn't really have 
caching of only order a few seconds. And we ran an experiment um, at St. Andrews. I think this is the one you're talking about. Right. Where we actually, I actually, um, you know, by, by the cunning use of beer, managed to persuade our local sysadmins to change the, um, the time to live, the TTL values for the DNS records, at least for the, for the A records for IP version 4 here, all to zero. In fact, we changed them from 1800 seconds, I think down to 60 seconds, 30 seconds, and then to zero to see what difference it made to DNS load, both internally and from external access. And there's a paper on this you can find on the ILMP website. And um, we found it actually made very little difference in terms of load. Load did go up, but not hugely. And as far as we could tell, that was the first practical experiment to show that running um, DNS with TTL values for at least the LEAF node records, like the uh, A records or Quad A records, with values as low as zero for the TTL, didn't add to the load hugely. Uh, and that experiment was really useful because it meant for us that, you know, potentially having DNS to support uh, mobility for ILNP and running uh, some records with TTLs of zero was not going to be a problem. Yeah. So. Um, what I think is really interesting about that is, is that much of what we work with in the networking world is, it's almost like two prongs, right? On the one side, much of what we work with in the networking world is designed for processors that are 6-bit and 8-bit processors that are really old and very slow. I mean, when I worked for Cisco, I know, you know, we were talking about risk-based versus uh, x86 mm-hmm. instruction mm-hmm. sets and big Indian and little Indian. And these were all big, big issues. I mean, these were not minor things at the time. And fitting fitting code into very, very small amounts of memory, these were really huge problems at the time. And now we just kind of throw memory at things. And I think we can often... So, so one of the things I was going to say is that I think it's really important to understand that a lot of the things that we know about networking or we think we know are actually very old concepts that came out of these resource-constrained worlds like this DNS stuff. Honestly, DNS really isn't that slow and dynamic DNS is really not that big of a deal. Um, it, given the infrastructure we have for DNS today, there are so many recursive servers and, there are so, and they're so fast. Um, you know, they're, and they're, even in the root servers, there are 13 root servers, but there's not 13. There's probably 1,300 or 1,500, whatever the number is, because each of those IP addresses, those 13 IP addresses, is actually an entire suite of servers that are anycast all over the world. So, you know, we kind of have these myths. On the other side, I was reading this article the other day. was talking about how we just throw memory and processing it problems now, <laughs> and we don't optimize. So there's kind of a danger in both directions of over-optimizing and the other danger is just not optimizing at all and just throwing memory and processor at it. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting to me about ILMP is that it's kind of this intermediate state where you're kind of throwing some processor at it and some memory at it, but you're doing things that are trying to solve a lot of problems in a very elegant, simple way um, that is harkens back to the original ideas and networking. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that uh, Ryan and I tried to do with the original um, design of ILMP, uh, certainly we didn't want to add complexity. We wanted to see how much could we take away. And certainly we, we didn't want to rely on anything uh, beyond the end host apart from the routing and forwarding functions that, that exist. So we wanted really to have a truly end-to-end model for this. 
uh, originally that was really because it was an interesting research challenge but it also makes for um, a cleaner architecture in terms of implementing functionality at the end hosts that doesn't have to rely on things changing somewhere in the middle of the network or rely on middle boxes being aware of what you what you might or might not be doing at the edge uh, whether we've fully achieved that i don't know but certainly um, the experiments i've been doing here at st andrews with uh, my students uh, we're seeing that uh, a lot of that thinking which took a long time as you said to um, really uh, bed down into both architecture and into some of the engineering we're seeing that come into fruition now with um, the code we're putting into place in the linux kernel and the exper various experiments we're doing so are you seeing at this point a lot of um well let's let's even back up politically culturally challenges things that you've had to overcome in the process of figuring this out i mean for those out there who are thinking they just want to go invent a new protocol. <laughs> there's, there's actually a really uh, nice paper that a colleague of mine just handed me from Henning Schulzrin um, from earlier this year, from July this year, July 2018, in Computer Communications, which is, um, well, the title is Networking Research, a Reflection in the Middle Years, uh, as Henning uh, labels it. And he's got this very interesting uh, sentence in there about research and innovation and how it applies to networking. So I'm just going to read that. Um, so this implies that implementing changes takes decades, not conference cycles, and that implementation is largely driven uh, by compatibility with existing infrastructure and considerations of cost effectiveness, where resources that research focuses on, such as bandwidth and compute cycles, uh, operating equipment designed by others, etc., with emphasis on marketing, not on in innovation. So he's really saying just what you've said that there's there is this disparity between um, you know the research world and the commercial world, which maybe didn't exist in the earlier stages of when uh, you know the internet was being deployed. Certainly not in the you know with such a, a huge disparity as it does now, and that's really uh, impacting the way research moves into um research moves into the commercial world and deployment i mean on on the flip side there are things that have managed to make it in fairly quickly so things like for example multipath tcp has managed to make it in fairly quickly uh, quick is is being deployed for example and the interesting things about, about those is those are really trying to work end to end they don't try and change what's happening in the in the core of the network um, in terms of challenges, certainly there have probably been some political challenges I wasn't aware of. I've been very fortunate to have made some friends within the ITF community. I'm not going to uh, name names, of course, you're, you're one of them. But uh, if you are listening to this, I will say a big thank you to you now, even if I haven't um, managed to say it to you in person, because that's been very helpful in getting advice about navigating various hurdles, seen and unseen. Uh, and there are still technical hurdles to overcome. One of the big things that we want to have for ILNP is backwards compatibility uh, coupled with incremental deployment. That means making it work truly as a superset of IPv6, and that's turning out to be quite challenging in terms of how we write the code and integrate it with our, uh, with our test bed. So at the moment, we have uh, a Linux kernel, which is not publicly available it's within our testbed only that's because every time 
we we tweak a bit to make island p work a little bit of ip breaks um just because the the backward compatibility is is quite tricky uh, and in fact ip version 6 there's a fair amount of complexity in it now with uh, the kind of things you have to consider uh, to make ip work for ipv6 work for practical uh, for practical deployments so if if i'm a person who wants to use this or try it out how would i get a hold of it now at the moment we have um uh, some kernel code that's available. We have an older kernel, uh, Linux kernel, version 3.9. Uh, 3.9 is no longer supported, so we're currently just trying to port that to a 4.9 kernel. And the idea is that once that's available, that's available. Our, our, our real goal is to put this into the uh, upstream Linux kernel, so that just becomes widely available. But again, that's going to have, I can imagine, both technical and uh, political challenges because it's not implemented as an add-in module. It makes changes to the core uh, uh, operating system code for uh, IP uh, along the IPv6 packet handling path. So that code, quite rightly, will be subject to a lot of scrutiny before it uh, can be integrated with the kernel. So we will we will have to uh, spend some time trying to work out how that can best be done. All right. So. Um... What are the one of the things that you know you, you've looking back over the last fifteen or twenty years now of your development of this? What would you do differently? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think if I if I could, I would start doing the practical experiments sooner. Um, I felt it was very difficult to start doing practical experiments before we had a very big picture. Um, that covered all the bases. It, we, as I said earlier, when we started looking at this round and round, we realized, oh, we could, you know, this is going to solve a lot of problems. And so it would be effectively an IP replacement. And so that's a, a big thing to try and put out there and to get uh, building started on, like writing real code. So we felt at the time we've really got to have all the bases covered in terms of functionality, about backwards compatibility, about incremental deployment, about how it's going to play nicely with IP version 6. So we spent quite a bit of time on that. And looking back on it, I think maybe if we'd done some more um, earlier experimentation with just a subset of it, that might have uh, helped us to build things into uh, a more widely available code base earlier. Yeah, I, th I think we hear that a lot, actually. Like Paul Muckerpeacher said something about that in working on DNS, that how important it was that he felt that they started out with something small and just worked and coded it and actually started playing with it to figure out. Mm -hmm. but, but I think the problem that we run into in the Internet world now is that we're such a scale that if you deploy something even that's small, it's actually huge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... And there are, you know, there are other technical problems. Um, you know, so all our test beds at the moment are isolated because just like everyone else, we have a site security policy. And, you know, our guys are rather reluctant for us to say, you know, have uh, machines with root permissions for all our students, just, uh, you know, changing the network stack and running packets all over the network. So the network, um, that the test bed network that we have here is on uh, an isolated, uh, well, a semi-isolated segment, right. just because of, again, practical concerns people might have uh, about 
by the you know bugging our code swamping the rest of the network with horrible packets or just you know um a compromise on yeah. our test bed being a uh, being used for uh, swamping the rest of the network with horrible things yeah so right. there are lots of um, practical issues as well in doing networking at this lower level um and of course we can't use vms really uh, either because the vm assumes uh, pretty much assumes the stack is stable Ah, yeah, that's true, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so even when you get into that world with something like ILMP, there's going to have to be work done in FDIO and stuff like that to make it to make it work in that world better. Yes. Um, yes. So there's there's still a lot of work to do there. All right. Well, cool. Well, um, I think we're kind of good where we are. I think we can wrap up. So, uh, Donald, people can find you on Twitter, right? Me, yeah. not you, Sharp. Yep, that's me. And no blogs. No, not today. No blogs. He's a bum. He's a lazy bum. He doesn't do blogging. Exactly. <laughs> Salim, you mentioned a couple of times this idea of the Island P webpage. Maybe you could uh, uh, t- talk to me. Is there a, an easy to find URL for that, or is that difficult? It's it's not difficult. It's ilnp. cs. sent andrews. ac. uk. Now, if you Google for Island P. You come up with a company called I Love Nail Polish. <laughs> but if you, Perfect. I, I think if you Google for ILNP St Andrews, it should get you. It should give you a link to the right place. Okay. And do you blog or anything like that? You're available. I guess you're on LinkedIn and other places. I, yeah. So yeah, I'm on. I'm on Twitter as um, Salim underscore Batty. Uh, I have LinkedIn. Uh, I have a LinkedIn account. So uh, and I have so Facebook. people connect with you there. Yep, absolutely. Cool. All right, excellent. And um, I'm Russ, and you can always find me at rule11.tech and the Network Collective and at Routing Geek and who knows where else, whatever. (laughs) Wherever it happens to be. So if you're out there listening to this now, thanks for joining us for the History of Networking on Network Collective uh, with Salim. And, um, you know, we're going to look forward to the history, the future history of ILMP, because I think it's a really interesting technology that a lot more people need to hear about. So, um, Come back and join us on the Network Collective, uh, History of Networking, and the rest of our shows. We have a lot of great content out there. And thanks, Salim, and thanks to our audience and to Donald for joining us. And that's it for this time.